So we come to the next vision, the fifth of seven visions that are in this section of Revelation. We're right in chapter 14 right now. These visions begin in chapter 12. This particular vision, this fifth vision, is a vision of three angels. And each angel is given a message. Let me read Revelation 14 beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to them, to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. So, let's look at each one of these three visions one at a time. We'll start with the first one, obviously, in verses 6 and 7, along with the messages that each one brings. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So angels are regular characters in the book of Revelation. We've seen that over and over again. And now we have another angel, this first angel. And like the two witnesses in Revelation 11, it seems to me this angel might represent the church in its witnessing work. This section would then represent Christians down through history proclaiming the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people, warning them of the judgment day to come, calling all men to worship God. And the loud voice shows that the message is urgent and must go to the farthest corners of the earth. The second angel 
we read about in 14.8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Well, first of all, what is Babylon the Great? This is the first reference to Babylon the Great in this book, though there are two more to come in Revelation 16, 19, and the whole chapter of 18, both of which also refer to its falling, but there's actually even more just about Babylon in general in the, few, in the rest of Revelation. How are we supposed to know what it means? Well, one of the things that we've already seen in this book of Revelation is that it says a lot of things which are meant to send us back to passages in the Old Testament for understanding. And this is one of those times. The first time we find Babylon the Great in the uh, Old Testament is back in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 4, and in particular in verse 30. Remember, he was... Uh, walking on the roof of his house, glorying in this city that he had built. And he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And as soon as that story is over, that chapter ends the next chapter, chapter 5 of Daniel, begins the story of the fall of Babylon. But Babylon here is much more than a proud nation brought down by God. It is also dangerously seductive. It, as it says in verse 8, it makes all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. This aspect of Babylon will be further developed in Revelation 17. Now let's remember what Babylon was to the Old Testament Jews. Of course, Babylon conquered the land of the Jews around 600 BC and exiled almost all of its inhabitants to Babylon, where they lived for 70 years. But before we ponder what that meant, let's first trace the struggle of Israel down through the years confront, con, uh, being conformed to the nations and the peoples around them. You remember after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they came to Mount Sinai. And there God spoke to them, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19.6 So God was calling them to be a holy people, set apart from all the other peoples, to march to a different drummer. They were not to do what the nations, the other nations did. They were to do what he told them to do. And when God gave them his law, a little later on at Mount Sinai, many of the laws 
We're about not conforming to the pagan, idolatrous patterns of the Canaanites who lived in the land to which they were going. Not to worship their idols. Not to marry their women. Not to follow their practices. And in the book of Deuteronomy, just before they went into the promised land, God warns them of the dire consequences should they turn away from him and worship the gods of the peoples around them. But, even before they got to the promised land, they began to struggle with conforming to the other peoples. They longed, for instance, to return to Egypt with all of its securities and treasures. You could tell that in their hearts they were still attached to Egypt even though God had delivered them from their masters and oppressors. And then when they sent the 12 spies into Canaan, remember how impressed and intimidated they were by their size and their cities and their affluence. And when they finally moved into Canaan, that promised land, they kept falling under the influence of the peoples who lived there and had constant problems avoiding the influence of the Canaanites. You can see this tendency to lust after the treasures of the Canaanites right from the start when Achan, at the Battle of Jericho, took forbidden treasures and hid them under his tents. His tent. As time went on, it got worse and worse till worshiping the gods of the Canaanites became commonplace among the people of Israel. In fact, this is the main reason God brought judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians and then finally ripped the people of Judah out of the promised land and sent them to exile in Babylon in fulfillment of his threats in Deuteronomy. So now you have this people that have been forced to go to Babylon. And let's talk about what that was like for them after they were conquered and humiliated and exiled there. In Babylon, they saw something they'd never seen before. One of the great centers of world culture that honestly made everything else, everything they'd ever seen in Israel, look backward and rinky-dink, if that's still a word that is used. It probably isn't, but maybe it should be. It reminds me a little bit of when we went to Macau this spring in, in China, the gambling capital of the world, and stood in awe before these casinos that were like the size of a town. And uh, you just, your mouth just stands open and you walk inside and see some of the treasure. You think, this is, I th this is like what heaven, I thought heaven was going to be like in terms of its glory. And, and it makes everything else you've ever seen here, even Disney World, look rinky-dink. I'll bring it back into style, single-handedly. 
compared to insignificant Jerusalem, Babylon was a place of unimagined wealth and splendor with magnificent pagan temples on every side. Temples which made God's temple in Jerusalem look a little pathetic, meager, and backward. And honestly, it put their monotheism to test, to the test. They began to wonder, many of them, if the God of Israel really was the only supreme God over all the world. After the, watching their homeland be destroyed, after being humiliated by their much more powerful pagan enemies, it was easy to be awed by the power and splendor of Babylon and to become enamored with this new place of glory. And some honestly caved in and gave up their faith in God. They, as the scripture says here, drank the maddening wine of Babylon's adulteries. But others didn't. They listened to the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who declared that this suffering that, that the people of Israel had gone through was God's discipline for their adult idolatry. They refused to buy into the ways and the culture of Babylon. And with tenacity and courage, they fought to carve out a new life of faith in this new place and want, waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise to return them home after 70 years. They gave renewed attention to obeying the laws of Moses, especially circumcision and the Sabbath. They also began meeting on the Sabbath in regional groupings, which came to be called synagogues. So the Jewish people set themselves apart from their Babylonian neighbors in these ways by trying to be scrupulous about obeying God's law in this foreign land. Unlike their faithless fellow Jews, these Jews were very unpopular in Babylon ridiculed and laughed at. They were unable to prosper like their neighbors because of their commitment to make choices consistent with the law of God. Each Jew had to decide which way he was going to go. Was he going to give up his earthly dreams of success, comfort, and security and seek to be faithful to God? Or was he going to let that go in order to pursue the prosperity and pleasure of Babylon? And the Jews watched this play out with each other, with their relatives, their friends, their neighbors, this struggle, this temptation, this great choice and decision that each one had to make. And you can just imagine all of the conflict and all of the arguments that took place in the community of the Jews during these times when, you know, the, the, it was going in two different directions. Of course, in spite of the fact that God had used Babylon to punish his people. God later punished Babylon for what they'd done. And Babylon fell to the Persian Empire. 
and the Jews eventually were returned to their homeland after the 70 years as God had promised. Well, here in Revelation, this Babylonian dynamic, well known to all the Jews of John's day, to illustrate the reality of life during the church age in which we live. To teach us and show us that Christians live in the context of a world contrary and even hostile to the ways of God. And how Christians must resist the temptation to buy in and cooperate with the ungodly world system. They must resist the temptation to become intoxicated and receive his mark on the forehead or hand in verse 9. And they must do this in spite of the fact that it may well bar them from worldly success. God gives these visions because he wants his people to know what's going on. The devil and his agents are using the world economic system to ensnare people through their love of money and material pleasures. And they don't even realize it because they are so intoxicated with it that it's like they've lost their minds. Like someone who's drunk and has basically gone mad. And so the second angel declares the end of this world system. So we hear, so we see where all this is going. That the world, with all of its seductive charm, is going to be dismantled and burned. And that the one who shares its life will also share its destiny. That's the second angel. The shortest one takes the longest to explain. The third angel, beginning in verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So here we see the stated consequences of worshiping the beast. Verse 8 said that the nations drank from Babylon's wine and now verse 9 through 11 say that anyone who drinks the wine of Babylon will later drink the wine of God's wrath. The intoxicating effect of Babylon's wine seemed strong but in comparison the power of God's wrathful wine is much greater. Babylon's wine has a temporary effect. God's wine, its effect stands forever. This is a stern warning for those who go along with the world, who go along with the crowd, who go along with what everyone else is doing, who buy into the culture and Make it their identity. The fact is, God wants to be our influencer. 
He does not want us to be influenced by the world around us. And then after the descriptions of these three angels, there are conclusions drawn and applications made in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It's not easy to continually resist. You're swimming upstream. And if you've ever tried to swim against the current, you know that it's a lot of work. But this knowledge of what their end will be, those of who go along with the current, helps keep the faithful going in the face of resistance at the hands of beastly men. But this verse also provides a great insight into how to properly interpret the book of Revelation. It helps us to see that this, is, that this book is written for the purpose of helping the faithful who are facing persecution to keep going and endure the world's persecution and trouble. I wrote a handout a few weeks ago about how we should interpret the book of Revelation. It's now on our website, gpcweb.org. And uh, basically I'm making the same point. This book of Revelation is for us to help us in our faith. That's what it's all about. But here and elsewhere, we have confirmation of that fact, of that approach. For after the vision, we're told, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. That's what this is for. This is a call. This tells us something about how we should be living and how we should be thinking. Last chapter, verse 10, 13, 10, basically says the same thing. It gives a vision and then it says, here is the, a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And ultimately, that's the point of all these visions. They're to help God's people down through the ages stand firm in the faith, even in the face of ugly and wicked opposition. That's even how the book begins, if you remember. In verse 9 of chapter 1, John introduces himself. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. So from the beginning, this has been the context and the purpose of this book. And that's why each of the letters to the seven churches includes this promise at the end of glorious rewards that come to those who do not cave in, but who endure, who conquer and overcome. And that's why this is inserted again and again in the midst of these visions. This calls for patient endurance. Now let's look at verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Just as the one who shares the life of the beast will also share in his destiny, so also the one who shares the life of the Lamb will also share in his destiny, in his glorification. If Christians remain loyal to Jesus, they will suffer in the present. But afterward, they will gain the blessing of eternal rest. For the believer, death represents the finishing of a race and the winning of a reward. As Paul says, for me to die is gain in Philippians 1.21. And so to help us persevere, God has not only given us a warning of judgment if we don't persevere, but a promise of reward if we do. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, for they will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. So now in conclusion, let's rise up and look at this passage from a bird's eye view. We see, first of all, that in the midst of this corrupt world, there is good news. There is a gospel. There is a God to know. There is a God who speaks. And there is a God who must be listened to. There is a God to worship, a God to glorify. Who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain and ransomed people by his blood. That's why we were created. That's why we're alive. That's what we're made for. That's the good news. We also see that the good news has bad news attached to it. There are severe consequences to the bad to the good news if it's not embraced. Verse 10 and 11 put it so starkly about the consequences of those who resist the gospel and flee from the God who extends his truth to them in love. It says, he will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So much for the notion, by the way, that hell is merely the absence of Christ. Here, it says that they are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever with no rest. Maybe, like me, you're uncomfortable with this concept of eternal torment. How can you not be? But saying, well, I really don't like this. It doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't make it untrue. This is God's word, whether we like it or not. Only fools refuse to listen to God because they don't like what he says. And one of the main ways that we are being targeted by the evil one is through seduction and intoxication. 
The same tactic he used with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan wants to replace our worship of God with worship of the things that were created, the things in the world. Instead of having awe towards the living God, the creator, he wants us to have awe towards people and things and movies and songs and video games and technologies, things which were created. And he makes the forbidden fruit look so desirable. He makes the benefits of buying into the world system look so safe and so secure and so enjoyable and so positive. I think we can all feel the pull. And if we can't feel the pull, then we're probably in real trouble. Because if we don't feel the pull, it's probably because we're giving into it without even recognizing that that's what's happening. You know, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. This is not just a lofty religious expression. Hallowed be thy name is a cry of desperation. In a world which dazzles and allures, this is a cry for God's help, for God's work in our hearts, so that we would desire him and not other things, so that he would be the thing that grips us and melts us and captivates us. Because it's so tempting to be gripped and melted and captivated by all kinds of other things that are in the world. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in me and in us. The very end of the passage, the very end of the last verse, the Spirit says that those who die in the Lord will rest from their labors. This is in contrast with what is said of those who worship the beast just two verses earlier, where it says there is no rest for them day or night. The promise of eternal life I'm sorry, the promise of eternal rest implies that life is toilsome and laborious. According to what the Bible says, you can't glide into the kingdom of God. You don't drift into it. You aren't carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, as one of our hymns says. It's got to be sought. It's got to be fought for. It's a race which must be run. A fight which must be won. And you'll find that the resistance you meet will oftentimes feel way too much for you. Unless your roots go very deep. It requires a determination and a zeal which only, honestly, God can provide. And that's why we go to him. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. 
And if the world can't seduce us, at least they want to get us to shut up. They scoff at the notion of divine judgment. They ridicule those who identify themselves with Christ. They express disgust over those who refuse to buy into the world system. They claim that the most loving thing that a person could ever say to another is actually hate speech. And that thing is that you, there is a Redeemer who has died for the forgiveness of sin. So we feel a constant pressure to remain silent and hide our light under a bushel. But God calls us with a loud voice to proclaim it to the nations. Heavenly Father, thank you for this part of your word and for every verse and every phrase and all that it has to say to your people and to us. And Lord, we take it now and pray that like good seed, it would fall deep into our souls and grow up and bear much fruit. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would add to your word the work of your spirit, that, dear Lord, it would tra have a transforming effect upon us. And now we thank you for the privilege of coming to your table and pray that in coming we would meet Jesus here, that we would remember the cross where Christ bore the weight of our sin upon his own shoulders. And that, dear Lord, this would be a great celebration for us of this deed that he did in order that we would be set free, in order that we would be forgiven, in order that we would be given new life, in order that we would become your children, in order that we would have an eternal hope before us, that one day all of this will be over and we will dwell with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.